Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Cameron Mortensen, the driving force behind the Fiberglass Manifesto. We take a deep dive into all things glass and the past, present, and future of TFM. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please follow us and leave a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. We've also received several listener questions asking about the best way to support the show. In addition to subscribing in the podcatcher of your choice and leaving us a review, you can also support the show by using our affiliate link when you shop on Amazon. It doesn't cost you a thing, and we receive a small commission on your purchases. You can also become a Patreon patron and make a single or a recurring donation. Links to both of these options are in the show notes. There wouldn't be a show without listeners like you, and we appreciate your support more than you know. Now, on to the interview. Well, Cameron, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Hey, welcome. Thank you for uh, inviting me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. I sort of feel like I've arrived when I have Cameron Mortensen of the Fiberglass Manifesto on the podcast. Well, I think it's just because I kept pushing you off and my schedule wouldn't work out for us to actually talk. So I'm glad all all the pieces fell into place for it to happen tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. You know what? Growing up, my dad did not have, he didn't fish. And um, I have like an early memory that we used to, uh, we had a camper and we'd go camping. And I think my, my mom pushed him like, hey, you should take the kids fishing. And it was not something that he was uh, super stoked about. And I think that there was something happened with like the worms that he bought, like died and we had to go get more. And he was like in a bad mood about it. But, um, fast forward from there to when we were actually fishing, uh, we had a, I remember there was a white bucket, we put some water in it and we kept catching these little bluegills and we throw them in the bucket. And I think we played with those bluegills in the bucket for like half the day. Um, and I still remember like the fish would kind of swim out of my hand and then like their, their, uh, um, fins would kind of spike me in the hand, but it was just like, I was so drawn to these like little uh, bluegills in this bucket. And then at the end of the day, we put them back in the lake. Uh, so that's the earliest memory of fishing. And then kind of fast forward a number of years, I end up working at a summer camp in Northern Michigan. And, uh, there was a lake, uh, at the camp that had great fishing. So there was a bluegill in there. There was smallmouth, largemouth, there was pike. And, um, there was a group of guys that fished a lot and kind of gotten to, uh, in with them and we'd fish early in the mornings and a lot of times in the evenings. And, uh, and it was while I was working there at the summer camp that I started fly fishing. And, um, and so I learned how to cast on the lake and had a little, uh, Oh, little foam spider that I would, was learning how to cast and I would catch bluegill. And every now and then a pike would come and just snatch that bluegill. And so, my rod, you know, would have a bluegill and you kind of like expect to feel what a bluegill feels like. And all of a sudden the, that feather light would just like totally go bendo on a, you know, 30 inch pike that snatched the uh, bluegill and, and fight those most of the way to the boat. And then they would either break the line or they would come off and that poor bluegill was all scarred up from it. 
<laughs> yeah, that's pretty neat. And, you know, uh, kind of moving forward from kind of high school forward, you know, who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what do they teach you? Well, you know, a, a lot of what happened happened in fly shops um, it was people that I don't even know their names now. Um, when I was just learning how to fly fish, you know, I hung out a lot. The summer camp was just outside of Grayling. Um, I remember I went into Ray's, um, or I think it was called the fly factory back then and, uh, bought some flies and went and caught uh, the first trout I caught on, on the Asapo river was actually like a 10 or 12 inch brown trout that like took a, um, a coachman trude off the top water. And I was just totally stoked and ran back into the fly shop the next day to tell him that I'd caught a, you know, a, a 10 or 12 inch fish. And I didn't know it then because I just started, but he was like, Oh, that's a pretty good fish for your first fish. Well, the rest of the summer, you know, daytime, um, the Asable, I would say you can go and catch a ton of trout, but they're all going to be like three, four, five inch trout, um, six inches, you know, during the day or in the evening. Um, I didn't know then that a lot of times those big fish come out like at night when the brown drakes are out and the hex are out and you're throwing mice patterns. Um, so it was kind of a, a really neat first fish, um, to catch that, you know, um, 10 inch brown, uh, just total luck, I guess, but it totally got me, you know, stoked about fly fishing. And, and then there was an old guy in town in Grayling that he, Tied flies in his garage. Bob Smocks was his name. Um, and it's pretty funny because as somebody that's like just getting into fly fishing and everything I was reading said, you got to have this, you got to have this, you know, all these like latest, greatest pieces of gear. And here's Bob Smock, you know, tying all these traditional uh, grayling, like a sable uh, river pattern. He was a production tire, but he would also sell flies to just guys that would come in off the street. But I'd spend a lot of time in there and he's like, you don't need this. You don't need this. You really just need this. Like he was trying to break fly fishing down to like the most bare essentials of what you need. Um, and like young 17, 18 year old me was like, all right, whatever old man. But like thinking back, like he was completely spot on, like all this extra stuff that I thought I needed, I really didn't need, you know, I needed a handful of flies and you know, um, like Bob knew that. And it took me like fly fishing for a number of years to realize how right he was. But, um, as like the one person that I can remember, like, like a name, like Bob, like gave me, spent a ton of time with me, taught me how to tie flies, taught me a lot of the techniques of the like, Oh, patterns that originated out of, out of Northern Michigan. Um, and just, you know, it was pretty neat to spend time in his shop. Yeah, that's neat. And so were you mostly kind of trout focused early on and were, or were you chasing smallmouth and obviously steelhead given the fact that you grew up in Michigan? You know what, here's the thing that's like the, um, like I really kicked myself. So I was very, very trout focused, um, and really thought like all of fly fishing was centered around trout. Um, I went to school in South, uh, West Michigan, uh, for college and we had a right off the St. Joe river, I like totally didn't realize like what a Mecca for salmon and steelhead that river was until I moved away. And I was like, Oh, I guess that place is kind of a big deal. Cause I was just getting into it. Um, that last year 
I think I had a five weight and then my roommate in college had an eight weight and I would borrow that and go mess around with it. And I had a Lake run Brown that was in the Dwajak river. I like swung it on a spay fly that I had tied. I think it was like a green butt skunk that I had tied. Um, and I was pretty stoked on that and I was just getting into steelhead when I left, but I still didn't realize like how much that area, um, was like a draw for other anglers, like a destination place to come fish until I'd left. Um, and so after I left, we lived out in Colorado. So everything was very, very trout based. And it really wasn't until we moved to South Carolina, um, like 20, about 20 years ago that. I really started like deep diving into warm water fishing and saltwater and, and kind of moved away from trout. Yeah. It's interesting too, cause I've been lucky enough to go up and, um, and fish for steelhead in Michigan a couple of times. And I'm just, I was just blown away at how fishy the entire state is. There's so much. And, you know, I think that it's much more known now, but I mean, there's absolutely everything in Michigan. Um, and you know, some things that like, maybe don't belong there. Um, you've got all those, uh, salmon species in the big water that, you know, run up the rivers, uh, and you've got lake run rainbows or steelhead, whatever you want to call them. Um, but there's tremendous warm water fishery. Um, you know, anybody that follows TFM at all realizes how much, you know, I, I look forward to my yearly trip to Beaver Island for, uh, smallmouth and carp and pike have actually, you know, the first couple of years we fished there, um, we, Every now and then see like a hammer handle, you know, pike uh, on one of the flats. And now, I mean, we're catching like 40 plus inch pike up there. Um, and like there's like serious numbers around there. So it's kind of neat just over the last 10 years to see a pike fishery like completely develop out of, you know, someplace where we weren't seeing it before. So uh, I'm I've always been proud of the fact that I've been from Michigan and over the years I've really enjoyed like returning back there several times a year to do different things. And it's, it's a pretty amazing state. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of fly fishing opportunities that most people don't realize. Yeah, absolutely. And good hunting opportunities too, whether you want to hunt uh, birds or you want to go deer hunting. For sure. Yeah. So how, how did you get interested in fiberglass? You know, my very first fly rod, which I bought out of um, uh, Skip's Sport Shop, which was in Grayling. Um, and I was looking for a fly rod. I was like 17 years old, no money, um, working at summer camp for a school scholarship. Uh, and so really relied on just my parents, like sending me a $20 bill through the mail every couple of weeks. Uh, and I kept going into Skip's because they had an Eagle Claw Featherlight. It was matched with uh, a Martin fly reel, a little tuna can, uh, like a, I think it was a model 60. And then there was a cheap level line that was put on there. And so I think the whole outfit was $60 and I would run into town like on my lunch break and I kept going into skip and the same employee, like kept seeing me come in there and like fondle this rod. And finally one day he was like, Hey, um, you know, can you at least pay like part of it and then just pay it off, you know, cause he knew I worked at the summer camp. Um, and he's like, if you can just pay it off this summer, why don't you take it today and just make sure it's paid off, you know, before you leave at the end of the summer. Um, and so he gave me like a handful of, of, uh, uh, bluegill foam flies and, and I had a couple liters and a tippet, 
um, like 5X Tippet, and then that's what got me started. Uh, and this is like pre-internet, so really anything that I was going to hear about fly fishing, I was going to read either in a magazine or books at the library. Uh, and so while I'm like learning how to cast and, and fish with this fiberglass rod, everything I've read about is talking about graphite. And so very quickly, uh, you know, I ended up putting that, that feather light away and for a number of years didn't fish glass at all. Um, and just fished, you know, bought and fished a bunch of different graphite rods. And it wasn't until we moved to South Carolina years later, uh, where my wife is from that I like pulled out the Eucla feather light and I was like, ah, you know, this is at least fun for, uh, we, we live just through the woods from a, from my wife's family's pond, which is like this 50 acre pond, uh, and at least be perfect for fishing on the pond and, uh, started fishing that rod and was just really blown away by like how easy it was to cast and how much fun it was to put fish on it, uh, and fight fish on it. And by then, you know, the internet's like alive and well and started doing, you know, some Google searches about, you know, fiberglass fly rods and very quickly found the, uh, fiberglass fly rodders forum. And that just opened up like a Pandora's box of, um, something completely different in fly fishing that I had learned, uh, and very quickly started, you know, picking up different rods and a lot of vintage rods that weren't very expensive, you know, everything from 20 to $50 rods and kind of figured out what I liked and didn't like. And, and then just started diving deeper and deeper into glass. Yeah, that's neat. And that was probably, I mean, so if TFM is almost 13 years old, if my math is correct, that's probably, I don't know, 15 to 20 years ago. You know, if someone wanted to kind of get into glass now, how would you suggest they do it? Well, it was about 15 or 16 years ago when I first got into glass. And at that point, there was only about a dozen like rod companies, rod makers and blank makers that were messing around with glass. Um, and so that list was really, really small. Um, and like fast forward to now and that list, you know, there's a, I've got a, like a maker's list on TFM. Uh, and that list is, is approaching a hundred and I'm definitely missing. I mean, there's some that are out of country. There's builders in Japan, there's builders in Europe and elsewhere that I'm not familiar with. Um, and so now there's a tremendous amount of options and kind of the neatest thing in all of this is that there still is that $25 Eagle Claw Featherlight that you can find at Walmart, but you can also spend $1,200 for a Tom Morgan if you want to as well. So there's choices across the entire spectrum for all price points. And kind of something that's really neat along the way is that, oh, 15 years ago, there was a lot of guys that were either building off the same blanks or they were making themselves like a seven foot three weight, a seven, six, four weight and an eight foot five weight um, were kind of the mainstays in, in contemporary glass. Fast forward to now and you've got, you know, Chris Barclay building like very specific uh, technical small stream tools. You've got Mike McFarland that does everything from small stream tools all the way up to, 10, 12, 14 weights in glass for tarpon and jungle fish. And, you know, um, and then you've got other makers like Shane Gray that are like using 
the best blanks from everybody to build, you know, production rods. Um, and then you've got different fly rod companies that not only have like invested in bringing back glass in their lineup or introducing glass in their lineup, but now we're like two and three generations of what those glass rods are. So the last, oh, 12 years have been really, really interesting to see like how much this niche within a niche of fly fishing has, has grown and how much interest there is from anglers in fishing glass now. Yeah, it's interesting. And is there, you know, I know, I think I've uh, listened to previous interviews that, that you basically, you know, went cold turkey glass. And so you don't have any graphite anymore, but is there a kind of a, a specific application where, you know, fiberglass rods really excel? Well, I would say somebody that's just like very, like their interest is perked. I would always like point them towards like the trout weights. Like if, um, and when I say trout weights, that's like the three, four, five weight rods. And that's great for like messing around with everything from bluegill to, to bass to trout. Uh, but those, those weight rods are like a real sweet spot. Um, they're not going to typically be super long rods. They're not going to feel heavy. You're going to be able to feel, um, all the, the characteristics of, of fishing, uh, a glass rod. And then once you start there, uh, then it's like, oh, well, I, I would like, you know, maybe a longer six weight for doing smallmouth fishing. And then, and then you're like, oh, I've got, you know, I talked to a guy did a presentation for a group up in New York on a zoom call the other day. And one of the guys was going to Mexico the next day. And he's like, I'm taking a, a glass eight weight with me. Um, cause I want to catch a bonefish on it. And so then it's, it's easy to grow from there because you already understand what you like about glass in those three, four, five weights. And then, you know, a little bit better what to expect when it comes to a six and eight, a 10 weight, uh, fly rod, or even like a two hander when you're, you know, with a switch rod, uh, and it gives you a little bit better depth of experience than for somebody putting an eight weight in your hand or a 10 weight and saying, you know, figure this out. Yeah. It's interesting. It's almost kind of pretty similar probably to the arc. Most of us follow when we get into fly fishing for trout on graphite. Yeah. And you know what? And I would say as a tool, like a teaching tool, uh, a five weight fiberglass rod is is great for that because a new somebody that's new to fly fishing that's learning the cadence and the mechanics of casting is going to feel that rod load easier with with a fiberglass rod um and you know i've i've watched people that i've fished with you know that are all stoked about this graphite rod that they're fishing this fax faction six weight or whatever and i'm watching their casting and their arm is doing a ton of the work where with, with glass, it ends up, you just watch that rod load, you learn the timing of it, and they end up being a great um, teaching tool because somebody that's new to fly casting can figure out that, that rhythm of what they, they should do because they're going to feel that rod on that back cast. They're going to know when that line's unfolded behind them so when they can need to move forward with their forward cast. Um, so from a teaching tool, it's great, but then... You know, they just end up being great casting tools for people that are accomplished fly casters as well. Um, I might not be able to air out an entire fly line, but, you know, I've seen very accomplished casters that weren't even familiar with glass and picked up a glass rod in 20 or 30 years 
and I've seen them like lay out an entire eight or nine weight with a glass rod. So like, if you know how to cast, you're going to be able to figure out that, that, um, that slowed down tempo that you're going to need with glass. Uh, and you quickly realize that, that a glass rod is going to do a lot of the work for you, especially when you're doing things like musky fishing, big flies, heavyweight line. Um, it's pretty neat to watch that rod load up and then just launch, you know, like a cannon, you know, that, that fly line with that big fly attached to it. Yeah, it's neat. It's why you were talking about that. I was thinking, I vaguely remember a post on your site. There was a video of Tim Ray Jeff talking exactly about how, you know, casting with fiberglass would make you a better all around caster. And I totally believe that, you know, even if it's not something that you do all the time, you know, just picking up a glass rod and just figuring out that tempo and, um, I don't think I'm an accomplished caster. I don't think I'm a great caster, but I also know that I typically don't embarrass myself when I'm in a boat with, you know, um, I've had, uh, this isn't a boast or anything, but I've had more than one guy like, Oh wow. You know, like you can really cast that rod well. Um, because I don't think they expect when this, you know, glass nerd gets in their boat. Um, they don't expect it to be like an equivalent tool to the graphite rods that they're usually used to using might not be something that they get dig or understand, but, um, at least being able to get in the boat and being able to use it correctly, um, and be able to kind of get the job done is I've always felt good about. Um, and I just know that I feel like I'm a better caster for the time that I've spent with glass rods over, um, uh, maybe not when I've struggled with graphite rods, but I just don't enjoy, uh, how much work they take a lot of times to cast. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, so if we kind of go back to kind of, I'll just call them first generation fiberglass. And you've talked a little bit about, you know, how you've got, you know, almost 10 times as many manufacturers and builders than you had when you even started looking at it. But in the, you've got, you know, more length variation, but kind of how has the fiberglass technology evolved? Because I'm assuming like everything else, it's, you know, not 1950s, 1960s, 1970s fiberglass that people have done things with the material and construction over time. So there's been, you know, and, you know, a lot of back in the day type deal, uh, there was a lot of e-glass that was used. Um, there's more S-glass that's used now. Uh, S glass is going to be a higher modulus. So just like graphite, uh, fiberglass has a modulus that's attached to it. It's going to be slower than, of course, than, than, you know, graphite fiber, but you know, like S glass ends up being lighter. The modulus is quicker. Um, so you're able to create rods that are lighter in hand that have, that are more progressive and taper typically. Some of your Asian rods, um, that are coming out of Korea, uh, that are typically built or China, you know, that are built for like Cabela's, um, et cetera, are using what's called a T glass. And there's a different modulus in there as well. Uh, but really everything's E S and, and T. Uh, but then there's different, uh, resins. There's different, uh, ways that the fiber is used that, uh, rod builders can create, you know, um, you know, you put e-glass in the hands of Mike McFarland, he can make a fast action rod with it, you know, where a lot of other builders would use that to create, you know, something that was slower action. So having all these different uh, builders put that, that material in their hands, they can do a lot of different things with it. But overall, you're seeing a lot more builders that are focusing on S-glass right now. There's, um, you know, there's, I would say that there is 
kind of more technology and advancements in that S class. Uh, you've got Zentron, you know, these different resins and different different things that are added to it that are creating some really really special rods right now. And so, is the manufacturing process very similar? to graphite in the sense of you have a mandrel and you roll it or is it a completely different process same same process in fact um you know a lot of the rods i mean a lot of times they'll use the same tables you know they'll they'll roll uh in the same places uh and the thing that's really important is a, a lot of times in when you do that uh especially if rods are coming out of of asia and they're being mass produced, they'll use the same tables for graphite as they will for fiberglass. And you'll actually find little tiny, you know, if you see these little black flecks, like in a white blank, it's because it's picking up those, those, um, graphite, you know, shards or fibers, you know, kind of when they're being rolled into the glass. And so you get those imperfections from the same, same, um, rolling tables being used for, for glass and, you know, graphite production. Um, so, you know, a lot of shops will keep that separate so they don't have to worry about that contamination. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know you, you mentioned, um, some builders, uh, kind of earlier in the interview, but you know, who are some of the people that you're kind of, I guess, you know, you got a list of almost a hundred people, so you can't watch everybody all the time, but you know, who are some of the folks that are, you know, you think are doing some of the coolest stuff right now in fiberglass? You know, it's really a range. You know, you look at somebody like Shane Gray that actually quit his full-time job to build full-time, and he's done his own uh, different signature lines of glass, but then he's also, you know, pretty much, you know, created relationships with all these different blank builders so that he can get Mark Stephan blanks. He can get Mark McFarland, Mike McFarland blanks. He can get um, blanks from... Uh, Indian rods in, in uh, Japan. He can get, you know, blanks from swift fly fishing with the epic blanks. So, you know, he has all these different blanks that come into the shop and he can create, you know, things that like everybody's looking for. Uh, and then you look at Chris Barclay and he's like dove deep into creating like really small stream technical tools and, you know, found, you know, proprietary blank makers that he, you know, has his own blanks made for his rods and everything's very specific. So, uh, I think that an equalizer in all this is that, uh, it's pretty easy to make a website, but then, uh, something that's been really neat to see is how many different builders utilize social media and as a way to tell their story, talk about things that are going on in the shop. And so it's actually not hard to keep track of almost a hundred builders because, Things like uh, Instagram, uh, you know, is a you know, I usually end the day just doing a scroll through Instagram, and a lot of you know rod builders and rod shops uh, pop up in that feed. So it's kind of neat to keep up with everybody uh, and what they're doing. Uh, and then you've got other guys like Matt Lederman that you know prides himself in doing a lot of the the metal work that's involved with his rods, and you know, very custom uh, build from him. And he's you know a school teacher that builds rods, you know, during spring break and during the summers. So uh, it's kind of neat to see builders develop a niche for themselves. Some of them it's grown into a full-time job and then other builders really, uh, you know, keep it as something that they just do part-time when they have time around family and everything else. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of like uh, a niche within a niche within a niche, right? Where people find that builder story that really resonates with them. And that's kind of who they congregate around. Yeah. And, you know, when I first started this, my objective was to uh, purchase a custom build from every custom builder that was like around then. And, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, eight different custom builders that seemed like an, something that was achievable. But now, fast forward, you know, and there's 80 or 100 builders that I'm aware of and rod shops, it's um, A, not financially possible. <laughs> to spend four to a thousand dollars on all these different custom rods and then be like, how many rods can I actually fish? So it's been pretty neat to see like such an absolute spike in the number of rod builders and rod shops and paper makers and, and how many really, really cool things that are out there. Uh, and it, you know, really opens up a lot of conversations with, different rod companies and rod builders like hey what's something that nobody else is doing um and that's where you've seen switch rods and spay rods and pack rods and you know some people going super ultra lightweight with zero one two weights and you know other people looking at 10 12 14 weights uh and so it's kind of neat to see all the different choices that are out there now uh that really match you know no matter what type of fly fishing you do, there's a, a fiberglass fly rod that can be a really great tool for that. Yeah, that's super neat. And I mean, and part of that is, you know, probably, well, I know it is, is an outgrowth of the support that you've given that space through the fiberglass manifesto. And um, I was really curious to kind of, you know, hear kind of the creation story uh, for the blog. So, when I started hanging out on the fiberglass fly rodders forum, uh, there was a portion of the forum, which I don't even think is available now, but there was a chat feature. And, um, this is, I think our daughter was pretty young. So, I mean, there just wasn't as much things going on in my life. And so I started like kind of facilitating like a Sunday night chat. I'd jump in the chat room at like eight or nine o'clock at night and would stay in there for three or four hours. And so, uh, that Sunday night chat, there was, you know, kind of your regulars that would come in and check in and they might hang out for a half hour, an hour and cycle out. Well, to end the night, it was always, uh, myself and then, uh, Mike Carlson. And, uh, he is in law enforcement out in Wyoming, but he's also a rod builder. And so we had a lot of things in common because I'm in law enforcement. And so we would talk shop and we would talk rod building. And so one of these late night conversations back and forth, uh, you know, Mike was like, it'd be really neat if we had something outside of the forum because the forum at that time was very like vintage focused and not so much talking about all the new builders that were out there. Cause there just wasn't that many, but it was starting to pick up. And, um, he was like, you know, it'd be kind of neat if there was like an online magazine or a blog or a website where outside of the forum, people were talking about everything that was going on in glass. Um, and that's about the time that some of the out online magazines were coming out, like Catch Magazine, This Is Fly. It was still a, a kind of emerging uh, technology to have these flip-style magazines. And um, I, I'll never forget it. It was like 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night, and I like typed back to him. I was like, you know, what would we call it? And uh, he immediately 
type back, the fiberglass manifesto. And I was like, huh, that was kind of a catchy, catchy name. Um, but certainly, uh, I didn't have like the knowledge or know how to start, you know, um, you know, something online based and neither did Mike. And so we kind of let it sit for a number of months. Um, but we talk about it, you know, now and again. And then one night I was like, Hey, do you uh, mind if I try to do something with that fiberglass manifesto name? And, uh, I ended up doing a Google search for like how to start a blog and it linked me to blogger and, and registered, uh, you know, the name, uh, and just absolutely didn't know what I was doing, but just started, you know, putting a post up every few days. Uh, and, um, over time that kind of picked up and I was, you know, really saw it as a creative outlet for me and just started writing it, you know, a couple times a week. And then that turned into like almost daily. And then that turned into like daily, a couple posts a day. And, uh, you know, fast forward 13 years and I think we're pushing like 5,200 posts, like it's still going. And, um, I might not be as prolific as I was, um, before actually like during COVID, I was able to like start pumping out like three posts a day for a while. Uh, you know, it's still around. So I still don't pretend to know what I'm doing. Um, I still don't pretend that like I'm doing it right, but I have a good time doing it and it's been neat to like be a source for, uh, everything fiberglass and then, you know, other things along the way. Yeah, very neat. And of course, you, I don't think people can think about TFM and not think about the Comrade logo. So where did you get the idea for the design? So the first logo I started using was um, Jeff Kennedy uh, was doing a project called um, Fishing Flies 365, or it was essentially he was like developing a, a piece of fly art every day for 365 days straight. And, um, one of the pieces was, um, what he'd put on there called the retro fly. And it was like this stencil that he, you know, it looked like he had spray painted through it to create this very, um, stylized fly. And, um, I had been looking for something to put on a t-shirt and just message him, Hey, you know, is that something I could use, you know, for TFM, not even thinking that it would end up being a logo, but just, you know, something to run with. And he's like, Oh yeah, go ahead. And, you know, that was like 12 years ago. Uh, and fast forward to now, it's like there's still stuff with Retrofly on it. Um, and then maybe a year or two after that, um, Rob from Bugslinger, and I don't know if you remember that brand, but it was an apparel brand and he was doing all of his own artwork. And he was also working with Buff on doing some of their buffs under a, like a Bugslinger uh, logo. And now he works for Boat. Uh, that makes inflatable and all kinds of different uh, paddle boards. Um, I like sent him an idea one day. I think I'd seen a propaganda poster and I was like, Hey, what do you think about like having a fist holding a fly rod and, you know, love it if it was very obviously a glass rod. And I was very into JW young reels at that time um, and collecting them. And I was like, it would be neat if there was like this, this is the fly reels of Valdex made by J.W. Young, like, in the 1950s. Uh, do you think you could, like, create something? Literally two hours later, in a volley of, like, emails, we completely hashed out that that Comrade logo. 
and had the, like the, the illustrator art, you know, very, very quickly. So over the course of like a, a morning, we went from idea to like, um, you know, completed art. Uh, and that ended up being a run of t-shirts, actually several runs of t-shirts, stickers. And I'm like beyond surprised that that logo has so much draw to it even today. Um, I would love to do a new logo, but I just haven't had the time to concentrate on it. But it's also pretty neat to see like the retro flying comrade logos still like resonate with people so much. Um, and so there's also kind of like, if it's not broke, why fix it type type look at it as well. Yeah. I mean, I certainly have seen that out West. I've seen plenty of scoff buttons and all kinds of stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it is super cool. And, um, you know, the logo kind of reminds me of, um, those like college band posters, like before people had, you know, illustrator where they would like, um, you know, make, uh, cut the pictures out and make the, they make the band poster or whatever it was. It's really, really cool. Well, and it's, yeah, I, I really always will appreciate Jeff Kennedy and, and Rob, uh, letting me use their artwork. Um, and it's, uh, it's been neat that people immediately connect, you know, TFM to those two logos. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because I mean, I, I know, you know, you started it to really promote fiberglass, but I kind of remember in the early days, you, you know, I, I think there was a, a large kind of non-fiberglass community that was around you and, and like Southern culture was new. There was gink and gasoline and it was a really neat time kind of in the early days of TSM and like Western North Carolina and upstate South Carolina. And, you know, for folks that aren't familiar with that, you want to tell them a little bit about what it was like back then in terms of the community? Yeah. I mean, I think there was a lot going on from like a media standpoint and everybody was kind of close together, you know, between Charleston, Atlanta, Asheville. Um, I'm in Columbia area, you know, within, you know, two or three hours of each other, there was an incredible lot of activity that was going on. And a lot of that was playing off of each other too. You know, you had, um, Paul Puckett doing flood tide stuff. You had Dave and Steve doing, you know, Southern culture on the fly. You had Lewis doing gink and gasoline. Um, and we all play well together. And so if somebody was doing something somewhere, it was like, there was always this open invite to like, Hey, come down there, throw a table up, bring some stickers and, you know, let's, let's do something. Uh, and then Steve had like the perfect, like hangout. I don't know if you went to anything that was at the studio, um, but he did several fly tying events that were just like, bring your vice, bring your stuff you want to tie and come hang out at the studio. And, um, they're kind of wild times. And, uh, you know, it's kind of neat though, because there's a lot of anglers. I think, I think no matter where you're at, uh, people want to have a club and some place that they feel like they're a part of. And you see that in fly shops, you see that. And we definitely saw it in Western North Carolina with, with scoff. And it was kind of neat that first year that everybody was tying flies, everything was very like local based. It was trout flies, it was midges, stuff that used on the Davidson, stuff used on the, all the blue line. And then like fast forward two years and everybody's still in the room tying flies, but then everybody was like getting stoked on musky. And suddenly everybody that was tying midges before is now tying like these huge musky flies. Um, and so it was really neat to see all the synergy that was going on. Uh, you know, around it. And then you had Reba that was doing the, 
the Western North Carolina fly fishing show. You know, there was always a big uh, fly fishing film tour event at Highland Brewery. Um, and I just think there was a really family aspect of like, if one person was doing something, they were always inviting everybody else to come along and do it as well. Um, and that's still, you know, going on, you know, in smaller ways, but it's just, um, well, I think COVID derailed a lot of it, you know, we're just now starting to get back in the swing of, of actually doing in-person events. But, uh, for a number of years there, it was just, it was pretty neat. You know, there was always something going on and there was always open invites and, uh, it developed, uh, a community. And I think you're still seeing that, you know, uh, that's kind of ever reaching in that, that, um, the Southeast area. Yeah. I think so much too is, you know, I mean, we have such a diverse fishery in the Southeast, right. And that helped a ton too. Cause it wasn't just trout. It was like smallmouth, musky, redfish, you know, everything. Yeah, you know, it wasn't, you know, it's not beating the drum that everybody's suddenly going to end up on the same stream fishing on top of each other, you know. Um, everybody had different interests, and it was all about kind of holding up all those different fisheries and all the different things you can do. And it was really, I think, um, opened a lot of people's eyes, like how many different uh, uh, opportunities there are beyond just, you know, fishing native brook trout streams. You know, you've got redfish, you've got striper, you've got shad run, you've got, you know, um, maybe a secret tarpon fishery down, you know, in Charleston. You've got, you know, all these different things that uh, can keep you interested and and doing something different than, than everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a little bit earlier in the interview that, you know, you literally were Googling how to start a blog. And um, I was kind of curious, did you just kind of continue for everything that you've done with TFM on the digital media side teaching yourself, or did you have some folks that kind of mentored you along the way? It was a lot of self-teaching, but there was also a lot of watching what other people were doing. And, you know, that was very somewhat early on in Facebook. I mean, there's Facebook personal pages, but then like business pages and the whole idea of having like a business page for Twitter. And then there's Instagram that came along and that's kind of been where I've like focused. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on Snapchat, you know, uh, but you know, those three platforms and then just watching those develop and just really watching other brands and companies that, um, I thought that they were doing it the right way, you know, figuring that out. Uh, I would say Marshall from Midcurrent was always super helpful. Uh, and then somebody that probably did more than, more than I ever, you know, expected him to do would be Brian from, from Moldy Chum. Uh, he reached out very early on and was like super helpful and super just like, uh, just let me know that like, it was neat to see me doing something that was like a niche within fly fishing. Um, and he worked at Patagonia then and was helpful in some ways that way. And, uh, if I ever had questions, he was, he was always willing to help and fast forward to now, he's still, you know, always willing to help. Uh, when I was trying to figure out how to, Oh, monetize TFM with some ad uh, revenue, he was, you know, helpful in that where I was like kind of lost on how to make that step. Uh, and it was just, you know, he was, he, he never tried to hide anything. Um, and always been a good friend. And so I appreciate that. So, uh, but it was a lot of like watching what other people were doing. Um, like sometimes watching other people's missteps. I mean, social media is a weird thing and learning how to use it and use it correctly. So, 
um, is a, a process and still learning it today of like what works and, and what doesn't work. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you remember a particular moment, you know, when you knew you really were onto something really special with TFM? Well, there was one year early on where um, I didn't even know about what IFTD was then. And Scott Flyrod announced the fiber hammer, which was a, a glass switch rod. And it gets announced at the show. And that day I get like a dozen emails asking me what I know about the fiber hammer. I knew zero about the fiber hammer. Had no idea what it was. Didn't know anybody at Scott Flyrods. And that was a, a wake up call for me that if I'm going to be the guy that is trying to be the source of, of knowledge and like the landing page for people that are interested in glass, then I needed to start doing my homework on and following up on every rumor I needed to introduce myself to all the different rod companies. And so the next year, I believe it was the next year I flew out to Denver. I went to IFTD and I, um, went with business cards. I walked up and down every, every row and just introduced myself and had a short conversation with everybody there. I think that first year I handed out like 300 business cards. Um, in fact, day three, I was like hoarse. I was like spent. And I'll never forget talking to Tim Ray Jeff in the Echo booth. And he was spent. I was spent. And we just looked at each other. And I didn't know him. I barely knew him. You know, just met him that day. And he's like, yeah, we were both like not good for this conversation. Um, and at that point, they weren't doing glass. And um, and then like a year and a half, two years later, he just like called me out of the blue and was like, hey, let's talk glass you know, what should we be doing? So th that told me I was on the right path. And then for the huge miss with the fiber hammer, like two years later, Scott circled back and was like, Hey, uh, we're releasing a new generation of the fiber touch. We'd love to do our news release first with TFM. So I kind of felt like that was, um, a pat on the back. Like I was doing things the right way that a company that didn't even know who I was and I didn't really know what they were doing, you know, fast forward a couple of years and, and they were doing their big, you know, launch news release on TFM. So I felt like I was on the right path. And, you know, since then, like if I hear, if I can even like get a little whiff of somebody doing something in glass, you know, it's, you know, figuring out who I need to make a phone call to or, or email to. And, uh, it's been kind of neat to, to run down leads, you know, throughout uh, the industry. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, IFTD is like Woodstock. I mean, I don't know, like the consumer shows are fun, but I mean, if you're into it, I just think it's, it, it's just, it's mind blowingly awesome. Yeah. And you know, that first year, like I, I handed out 300 cards the next year, I think I handed out like 75 and it was a lot of like reconnecting. And the next year, I think I handed out like two dozen cards because it was like by then, you know, it's a very small industry. You're seeing the same faces over and over. And I was really like blown away that first year. Like people knew what TFM was like, you know, that kind of blew my mind that, you know, here I'm just working on a little project every morning before work. And it's like people in the industry, like kind of knew what it was. So, uh, pretty neat. And, you know, uh, it's been fun to have a circle of friends and contacts. Uh, you know, I do, Law, I'm in law enforcement full time, but then to have like a circle outside of that, 
has been, you know, pretty beneficial to me as well. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a kind of a biggest surprise or biggest lesson you've learned while you've been doing TFM? Well, I think there's a huge, like I said, I don't think I know like what I'm doing or if I'm doing it right, but I'm one of a handful of people that have just kept at it. Um, I've seen over the years, you know, a lot of people reach out and they want to start a fly fishing blog. Uh, they want to do something within the industry and they've got a lot of great ideas. And then, you know, I see them fizzle out sometimes a few weeks into it, sometimes a few months into it. Um, I think with TFM, like there's, there's a, there's a benefit to just keeping at it. Um, you know, I find spelling errors, I find grammatical errors, you know, in the website, you know, every, every day when I circle back on it, but it's just been something that I've just hammered away on. Uh, and it's, you know, given me a ton of opportunities I wouldn't have had otherwise. It's been a great creative relief. And so for those things, it's just been, you know, it's been beneficial for me to just keep at it along the way. And I would say for anybody that, you know, has an interest in, you know, doing a creative project like that, like don't get discouraged. Don't look at how many people are reading it today. Uh, in fact, like when I first started TFM, like I didn't even know how to figure out. And it was, um, I would say the internet was still pretty rudimentary when it came to like understanding and attaching like metrics and like how many readers you had, like I just didn't know for the first couple of years. And then when I did attach it, then it would give me historical data and I could see like two people checked it, five people checked it, you know, and then it increased to 30 people and then it increased, you know, over time and increased to a couple hundred. And then it was like, you know, 1200 people a day that were checking into it. And so I might've been discouraged the first couple of years if I, if I knew those metrics, instead of just doing it and not knowing if my mom was the only one checking it. So <laughs> I would always say like, don't get hung up on how many people are reading it today. Cause you're going to, if you keep at it, there's somebody that's going to find the website three years from now. That's going to circle back and read everything from the beginning. And every now and then I'll get an, an email from somebody that would be like, Hey, you know, I'm, you know, broke my leg and I've got nothing but time. And I actually just read the website backwards all the way to the beginning. And I learned so much or, you know, they appreciate it for what it is. Um, so I would just say, keep at it. There's benefits. It's worth it to keep at it. And it can give you a lot of purpose and focus just to, you know, keep continually like sharpening the knives on, you know, whatever that is that you're doing. Yeah. I think the podcasting game is exactly like that too. I mean, I, you know, I think you just need to be authentic and you need to commit to consistently showing up. And I think if you do it, it works. If you keep at it, it works. And, you know, like the last go around, the last IFTD I was at, like there was like three bloggers, but there was like dozens and dozens and dozens of podcasters. So like podcasters, the new bloggers. Um, and so it's been interesting even since then to see how many of those, those podcasters are still at it, you know? Um, Cause I think a lot of people are coming to podcasts now uh, thinking like there's a pot of gold there and the swag truck is going to back themselves up to the, to your front <laughs> door and, and dr make this big, you know, drop off. Uh, but it's the guys like you that like started something, they've continued at it. They've created a schedule with it. Um, and they've kept it interesting and, you know, you develop a, a listenership and it's, you know, it's the same, it's consistency and it's just keeping at it. 
Um, and you're going to get better along the way and you're going to have fun along the way of doing it. Um, and, and you can't start out worrying about like, is this going to be successful? It's going to be successful if you keep at it. Yeah, it's interesting too. I think the interesting thing, and I, there's probably an analog in the blog world, but you know, there's a real kind of um, independent corporate thing going on in podcasting right now, right? And um, you know, not to say that corporate people can't be authentic, but there's a a much more of a kind of an you know what I call stealth advertising approach going on in a lot of places, and it's you know it's not just fly fishing; it's everywhere, right? And that's an interesting thing to kind of watch. Yeah. And, you know, bloggers went through the same thing years ago. Like they were trying to like form these collaboratives. Like, you know, if we had these 10 blogs together, then it would be able, we'd be able to show these like massive numbers, which then we could get advertisers and, you know, then everybody would get a piece of the pie. And I don't know. I just, I've always felt like just being, just being in charge of me, and being responsible for what I'm doing is probably the best way to do this. You know, if, if I can put content out every day, great. If I can catch up with emails and keep up with that, great. But if I can't, like, I'm just responsible to myself. And I think you're seeing that with podcasts too, where you're, you're seeing these groups of podcasts, you know, kind of rope together um, for ad revenue. And I don't know, that's all too complicated for me. And I just felt like that, that would not be a, a good fit for what TFM is. And I overall, and most importantly, I never wanted to lose the authenticity. You know, um, I've very much worried when I brought advertisers into it, if people would be, you know, that had read it for two or three years, be like, Oh, well, this was the end game, you know, and just write it off. But, um, I think people understood that, I mean, this ended up turning into, you know, a part-time job for me, you know, beyond what, you know, the 40 or 50 hours, 60 hours I work at work, I was still putting time into TFM. There was an understanding that, you know, I, you know, needed to make a little bit of scratch to cover trips and whatever else, uh, through some advertising, but I've, I've always tried to keep it as authentic as possible. Well, yeah, I think too, I mean, I, you know, kind of on a related point, I mean, I always am very sensitive to not hacking people's attention, um, mm-hmm. and, and trying to not, you know, blow the whistle, uh, and, and kind of to your point in an inauthentic way. Yeah, I think it's important. I think people pick that up pretty, pretty easily now. And I think, you know, with, with influencers and everything that social media is like, I think people sniff through that pretty quick now. Yeah. And so, you know, how, how has your approach, you know, either to executing on TFM or generating content kind of changed over the, the arc? You know, I think a lot of it stayed the same. I mean, I figured out what worked and what doesn't work. Um, and then I get really excited about different ways that content can be generated. Um, you know, I'm working on something that might happen later this year and uh, on a trip and it's not just, well, let's highlight this fishery for two or three days, but it's, let's bring a noted fly tire that's local along and, you know, deep dive into his fly box and, oh, there's an author that wrote a, a book about, you know, these native bass species that are there. Let's like try to do something with him. And there's an artist that's local there that, you know, has been in um, really deep into conservation of this bass species in this area. And it's like, you know, trying to fit all these other puzzle pieces so that it's not just a, 
you know, we did, you know, three fun days on the water, but there's all these other, you know, portions of it and, and ways to highlight it. So, you know, that's been fun. And, and, um, you know, I've always looked at TFM as I know people don't come at, to just read about glass and especially in the early days when not that many people were tracking on it. And so I always kind of looked at it as like a puzzle, you know, and if I'm in a routine of putting two posts up a day, you know, it might be a glass piece and it might be like an online magazine, you know, sharing like the latest issue from somebody. And the next day might be, you know, a video and it might be a gear review. And so you're like piecing together every day, something that's just a little bit different so that it's not just fiberglass talk, fiberglass talk, fiberglass talk. Uh, you're, you know, kind of really varying that content up day to day. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we've kind of touched on this a little bit about, you know, the importance of showing up regularly, but, you know, you're a dad, you have two kids just like I do, you got a, a day job, you know, how have you figured out the way to kind of juggle all of that and still consistently put out content for TFM? Well, my wife works from home and she's, starts work like at between five and five thirty, And so we've just got really conditioned to getting up early. Uh, and then I don't know, like I'm in my mid forties and for the last couple of years, especially during COVID, like I was waking up like at three in the morning, like multiple days in a row. Um, and it's amazing like what you can get done from like 3am to 6am if, if you don't like whittle away your time on Facebook. So, uh, it's been a lot of early mornings and as I get older, I'm not that, um, I'm not that sharp at the end of the day. So I'm much more apt to like fall asleep early and then get up at this last week or so. I've been getting up at about 4am, make a pot of coffee and then spend, you know, about 90 minutes just working on content and answering emails. And I've been shipping out. I did a, finally did hats. People have been asking for ball caps for a while. And, um, shipped out, oh, probably 200 hat orders over the last couple of weeks. And so I've been working on that early in the morning too. So, uh, it's a juggle. And as you know, I've got a, we've got a 15 year old, almost 16 and our son is about to turn 12. And so it's juggling their schedules and playing taxi to them and work is always busy and stuff going on at church and stuff going on with family. It's, it's a, it's, it's a juggle and it continues to be a juggle, but it's always been something I've enjoyed and it's been a creative release and man, it's something I look forward to and I get excited about thinking about new content ideas. Um, and it's been pretty neat that something that's been going on for almost 13 years, like I still get super stoked and excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's your vision for TFM say in five years or 10 years? Well, I have this summer, I'll have 20 years in law enforcement. And so if I make it another five years, then I can possibly retire. Not to say that I can, I'm going to be able to do that. But if TFM can keep going for five years, it's going to help me mentally reach that milestone uh, and then kind of see what's beyond that. Uh, And so I would, you know, biggest thing is just keeping, keeping going with what's, what's happening and, you know, in 13 years, we've, we're pushing like almost 100 builders and rod makers and rod shops. Kind of interesting to see what's going to happen in glass over the next five years. And then what's going to happen the next five years past that. Um, when I started TFM, I would have never imagined 
that we'd be at almost 13 years and I'd still be hacking away at it. Uh, and so it's not something that I've ever thought about stopping, but then, you know, the other thing is, is that, uh, I wonder how much longer people read blogs. Um, and actually COVID was a, a real boom for that because I think that it brought people back to finding content in ways they hadn't before, um, or hadn't for a while, you know, been really dependent on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Um, you know, I really saw readership spike over COVID. And I also think people were coming into fly fishing and other things in the outdoors because they suddenly had time to do it and look at it. So, um, you know, I can see through, oh, Google search results or whatever that people are, you know, find the website, you know, looking for gear reviews and looking for content about things that they're suddenly, you know, newfound interest in. So who knows where Chief Ben will be, but hopefully I can, I can, you know, keep, keep working away at it. I still have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have anything kind of on the near horizon that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I thought I was going to do this during when TFM turned 12, but I think that I'm going to do it this year now because I'm trying to work out the time. But back in the day, for long-time readers, I used to do 12 Days of Christmas, and it was like a pretty significant giveaway or a multiple giveaways, you know, every day for 12 days, you know, in December. Um, and I really feel like um, 13 years of doing this is kind of monumental. And um, so I've been working on what I'm going to call like the lucky 13 giveaways. And they're going to be, instead of doing like daily giveaways, they're going to be like week or maybe even two weeks long giveaways. And they're going to like, for example, if we're giving away like an Orvis outfit, during that week or two weeks, we're also going to be able to pull back and talk about like old content, you know, like my visit to the rod shop in Vermont times where I fished with the Orvis crew, um, visiting headquarters in Manchester, you know, all these different things and use that week to like talk about everything Orvis. The next contest, you know, is swift fly fishing, go back and talk about and do updated Q and A's pull old interviews from back in the day and like, refresh old content and so there'll be like a series of 13 pretty significant giveaways that we'll do but it'll be a way to like create new content new q a's new interviews new gear reviews uh but then also uh give away some like pretty significant things for the uh 13 weeks so got everybody signed up for it now is just to like dial in the dates and make sure that i've got time to like pull this off the way I want to so that it gives it the um, focus that it deserves. So look for that. I don't have a start date for it, but hopefully in the next few weeks or month or so, we can get those started and it'll kind of run us right through uh, to the end of the year when TFM actually turns 13. So um, I would say that's the big thing. And then now that I've been vaccinated and, you know, travel seems like a go again, uh, got, um, some striper trips that are out of state and in state and my big trip to Michigan this summer. And, uh, and then talking about maybe doing something in the Southeast and do some native bass, uh, fishing. So, um, trying to figure out a way to get to Belize maybe this summer or fall. I'd still love to catch a permit, which I haven't done yet. Um, it hasn't been from lack of trying, but, 
uh, it's been a fun process with that too. So uh, we'll see. We're just uh, keep plugging away at it. Yeah, that's a pretty full uh, dance card. And before I let you hop this evening, Cameron, you want to let folks know where they can find the blog and find you on social media and all that kind of good stuff? So you can check in the website at uh, thefiberglassmanifesto.com. Um, active on Facebook, active on Twitter. I would say most active on Instagram. Um, and even if I'm not posting something every day, like I try to mess around with stories. I think Instagram stories is kind of a neat way to either share things that I'm doing, uh, and also like I'll grab things that I think are pretty neat along the way on Instagram and, and share that as well. So always my email, the fiberglass manifesto at gmail.com. If you've got glass questions, um, and you know, definitely reach out. I love helping spend other people's money when they have, uh, you know, want a new fly rod and, and want some direction, uh, have a good time you know helping people with that as well yeah very cool and i'll drop all that stuff in the show notes well cameron i really appreciate you taking some time out this evening to chat with me it's been a lot of fun well i had a great time too and hopefully i didn't ramble on too much uh not at all have a great one you too well folks i hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you again if you like the podcast please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice tight lines everybody